You ever hang out with someone really powerful, like a like a big deal, you know? In New Zealand, we don't have heaps of like real powerful people. Like I've got a few stories, like where I bumped into John Key once in the Koru Club. Now, whole whole story about how I even got in the Koru Club. Trust me, poorest guy in there by a long way. Whole worked some angles to get in there for sure. But you know, but I just bowled on up to John Key, and I was like, you know, hello, mate. And interestingly, that night, I was speaking in Christchurch uh, to a whole bunch of young adults about politics and the kingdom of God. We're going to go there a little bit today. So I was like, hey, John, would you mind filming my intro? So I got my phone out and he was like, g'day, I'm John Key, you know, Prime Minister of New Zealand. And uh, great to hear. Uh, good that you guys are talking about politics tonight with Sam. And I'm sure, you know, you guys will make more sense of it than I do. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I did that whole thing. And I'm like, where else in the world can you bowl up to the Prime Minister of your country? And just because everyone's freaking out because of how divisive politics, I also bumped into Phil Goff one time and I sat next to him on the plane. I'm like, again, where else in the whole entire world would you just, like, he just sat down next to me on the plane. So I had a yarn with him, confessed that I hadn't voted for him in the most recent election. So again, sorry about that. Um, but that my wife had, again, man, we're just dividing the church today. So, but just you could choose a camp that you're into, whatever. Um, and so she, he wrote a note to Jen saying, <laughs> Thank you for your support. Can you work on your boyfriend, as I was at the time? <laughs> Another time I went and um, I had to pick up a, a skateboard that my brother had bought me from Rob, Rod Jury, who lives in Havelock North, right? The guy that used to own Zero, Billionaire. Get your head around that. I could feel it, eh? I was like, billionaire. I can't even, like, I can't actually get my, math isn't my strong point. I couldn't get my head around you know, like if he saw like a hundred bucks on the ground, wouldn't it be worth him picking it up because he would earn more from his interest from the billion, you know, and that whole sort of like, so, you know, I worked the angles. I was like, hello, Rob. I pastor a church <laughs> in Napier. We're trying to serve the community. Do you want to help? Because I was like, what's four million bucks to Rob, right? It's just chump change. But he didn't give me any money, which has been annoying. Well, like Steve Lukather, uh, Kieran got me hanging out with him one time because uh, he was over here as the lead guitarist from the band Toto. Some of you guys, but he's a big deal. Like he, he was on all the sessions for Michael Jackson, like wrote a whole bunch of those riffs, just a phenomenal guitarist. And I was hanging out, you know, and I'm like having a yarn with him and I'm like, but you hang out with these people that are like either politically, socially or financially powerful and there's a whole vibe there, eh? It's like, oh, that's seductive. Wouldn't mind having that sort of cash or that sort of influence or that. Jesus is in this moment where he gets tempted with power by the devil. And we've looked at these different temptations that Jesus went through. The first two temptations that we've explored the last two weeks really go off, uh, you know, after our identity. So, like, you know, the devil's like to Jesus, if you are the son of God. And, uh, you know, you'll be, you'll be, you know, let's make you relevant. Let's make you spectacular or significant. He goes after those things in every one of us, the devil. He's like, he's like you know, you're not loved, so you've got to be a big deal. You know, you've got to be, have some sort of relevance or significance. Uh, he, he goes after that. But when we are experiencing, as we've just been singing and talking about, and Chrissy was saying, when we experience the voice of God speaking over us, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, and I am well pleased with you, then you're so, when you know you're beloved, you're freed from having to prove anything and you can live a life of love. But the last temptation isn't about identity, but it's about means. It's about how you go about doing God's work. If the devil can't get your identity, he'll go after how you build the kingdom of God. Uh, Henry Nowen in his book that we've been basing the series off says this. 
One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly give in to the temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power, even though they continue to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all, the greatest temptation of all. And this is why it's, I think it's super important that pastors and church leaders these days study at Bible college, learn some church history, because what I'm seeing constantly happen is people repeating the mistakes of history, thinking that if somehow we get economic power, political power, any sort of moral power in our country, whatever, then we can see the kingdom of God come. And, and we are foolishly mistaken if we think that we can handle that sort of power and if that's the way of Jesus. Because it's interesting, the devil took Jesus to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and said, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Now Jesus, again, this is the temptation of Jesus. So Jesus was tempted. We all know what that feels like. Like, oh, wouldn't it? Like, you know, I felt it every time I hung out with John Key, Phil Goff, Phil Jury or Steve Lukather. It was like, oh, that would be nice. Wouldn't it be cool to be that guy, to have that sort of power? Man, that would be super. And of course, I'd use it like for God's kingdom. Like, it's all good. You can, you can try. <laughs> the reason that hasn't probably played out, Jesus, like, yeah, whatever, bro. <laughs> so, like, but in this, we see that Jesus, Jesus is like the devil went after what, like, Jesus' purpose. So, Jesus' purpose was to move the kingdoms that were under Satan's domain to the rule and reign of God's domain. So the devil's like, all these, he shows them all these kingdoms, all this stuff. He's like, this will be yours if you bow down and worship me. Now, that's the purpose of Jesus. He, that's why he came, is to move the, the, the power that the devil has over kingdoms and nations and peoples and all sorts, of, to move that now under the, under the rule and reign of God. So it's like, but all you have to do is worship me, says the devil. Now, uh, a couple of things. Firstly, in Jesus, your life has great purpose. But here's the, here's the thing. Get clear on what that purpose is in terms of the kingdom of God. Like, it's far more, like, the, the purpose that Jesus has for your life is far more than just going to heaven when you die. He's got way more for your life than that. So get clear on your purpose. Don't waste your life just trying to do all the world stuff. Get clear on the kingdom purpose that God has for you. Well, how do you do that whole other sermon? But quickly, sit with Jesus. <laughs> Ask him to make it clear. Soak yourself in the Gospels, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Orientate your life around being with him, becoming like him, and increasingly you'll get clearer on how to do what he did. Um, and and there'll, be, there'll be a grace on your life for something. Serving children or youth, young adults, sung worship, community, hospitality, caring for the poor, discipling others, teaching, prayer, justice issues, pastoral care. There'll be a grace on your life that you'll come alive in and just give yourself to that purpose. Don't waste your life. Give yourself to that purpose. Get clear on the purpose of God. So Jesus had a clarity of purpose, but the devil offered him a shortcut. Bow down and worship me. Now, unfortunately, we think worship's just what we did, which is singing songs. Now, songs are a tool that can express worship, but they're not worship in its entirety. Worship is a lifestyle. So for Jesus to bow down and worship, it's like, man, this will be heaps easier for Jesus to just do it this way. Do it the way of the devil. Doesn't require humility, doesn't require servant-heartedness, doesn't require patience, doesn't require a cross. That's tempting for Jesus. But he rejects Satan's way. 
Worship God and serve him only, Jesus says. So the devil's way, which is of violence and power and of controlling people and is rushed. The devil's way is busy and intense. Jesus is like, no. So he lives out this different way, this peaceable way to the point of death. A, a, a life of humble empowerment for others. I love this. A, li- a life that was, was at the pace of love. That's a good line. I stole that from someone else. The pace of love. Are we living at the pace of love and how we build God's kingdom? It was slow and it was ultimately um, a life of love. So we can build the kingdom of God the king's way or we can build it the devil's way, the way of the world, the flesh and the devil. And tragically, I've seen some of you guys were like, how does this apply for me? Trust me, we're going to get really into the weeds in a second. But I'm like, It's broken my heart often to see movements in the name of Jesus use the ends to justify the means. What I mean by that is that when you're engaged with kingdom building activity, your soul should flourish and you should find healing in life. And tragically, when movements use people like batteries, where their body's under the bus and people get munted in the name of Jesus, all because the ends are good, Well, that's super broken because how we do it is as important as what we do and must be congruent with the way of Jesus. The means are the ends in the process of becoming. That's that's a sentence that's the means are the ends in the process of becoming. So so anyway, so so trust me, church, the 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 temptation to live a life where we just we we lean towards just the way of power is super strong for everyone. It's a massive temptation that we have to address from pulpits and in our own lives. So how does this manifest itself in the church today? Um, And I've just got two two thoughts. There's many ways, but here's the top two that came to my mind. I'm not that smart, but whatever. Here's here's my thoughts on this. Number one, I reckon one of the reasons, one of the ways this this desire to bow down to, to just say yes to power manifests itself and Christians having a passion for politics far disproportionate to their passion for the kingdom of God. Next slide. So like, now the word politics makes us nervous, <laughs> for good reason. In the best of times, politics can be contentious and divisive, and we do not live in the best of times. In more troubled times, politics can be corrupt and dangerous and even dead. Deadly. Now, I've just made this resolution in my own heart. We're going to have to just do a series on politics and the kingdom of God on every election cycle. So this year, we're going to do a mini series on politics and the kingdom of God, simply because I'm like, we've got to just confront the idolatry of this thing in the church and deal with it. But what is politics? Politics is the organized attempt to attend to the affairs of the polis, of the people, city, the society in which we live. We've got to work out how we live together. And we certainly in this day and age, we're really dependent on each other. All sorts of industries depend on one another. Social groups depend on one another. So how do we live together? And at its best, politics is the good faith attempt to achieve the common good. We want to try to move towards equality and goodness for as many people as possible. So every political party has a vision for human flourishing. From the left to the right, extreme left, extreme right, wherever you land, it's got a vision And the question is, do we actually believe in that vision more than we believe in the vision that Jesus has laid out for human flourishing? I know you, man, but I'm so disillusioned with the rhetoric of the left and the right. 
I'm super grateful we live in New Zealand. We have, like, it's crazy here, don't get me wrong, but we've got MMP, it chills it out a whole lot, which is good. Um, there's this, but there's this kind of competing vision for how you go about seeing human flourishing take place. And trust me, if you don't have this book and if you don't have Jesus as Lord, then where else can you go? You've got to go, like, honestly, of course, I've got no judgment for anyone outside of a Christian worldview that's going hard on their political things. Like, where else can you go to, to see a vision for human flourishing outwork itself? Of course, you get fired up about politics. But the danger for us who profess to follow Jesus is when we lose sight of who Jesus is. King of kings, Lord of lords. And what he calls us to be and how to live and what the kingdom of God is all about. We can lose faith or lose sight of Jesus' vision for human flourishing and look at uh, how weak and small and insignificant it looks in the secular West and go, nah. But the vision of the kingdom of God is human flourishing. Jesus in Luke 4 is like, gets up, he said, here's why I'm here. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. What? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has proclaimed, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. His ways come to see the kingdom of God come. The Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Next slide, thanks, Josh. Uh, can be summarized, and Brian Zion did this brilliantly, into 40 words. This is the whole Sermon on the Mount. This is our manifesto for the kingdom. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies and be merciful as your Father is merciful. Be, love your enemies in there twice because that's how strongly it's emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is our political vision for the kingdom. Like this is what we're called to pledge allegiance to. This is what we're called to live. This is what we're called to embody. And this is like, that's our burning passion. We want to live that. And again, Brian's on, this is huge. The church needs to occupy itself, not so much with trying to change the world, but love, but by seeking to be the world as already changed by Christ. Oh, that is epic. Someone tattoo that somewhere. That is so good. Oh man. Like, what does that mean? Like, he's spot on. That is phenomenal biblical theology. The church is actually called to be an alternative society. We're called here to create an alternative community of justice and equality. It's multi-ethnic, filled with love and compassion, and to offer the world a new way of being human and a new community to be a part of that in prayer affects wider culture in an influential way, but not in a power-orientated, control-based way. We don't put the Old Testament vision for justice on the world. We put it firstly on the church. Now, in a recent interview, John Mark bangs on about this. He points out that in the teachings of Jesus and in the book of Acts, so little is said about the gross injustice of the Roman Empire. It's a glaring and intentional omission, he says. And the silence is designed to say something. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Love if anyone had a right to throw their lollies about the, the, who was governing them, it was the early church and Jesus. Barely mentions it. There's so much talk about justice and equality about the church. It's all about the within the walls of the church, calling the church towards living this out. So the church is designed to be a town on a hill, a community of exiles, the body of Christ in the world, an alternative society to embody in advance the reign of Jesus over a people to learn to live under Jesus' rule now so that we can un live under Jesus' rule forever. 
That's the, that's the vision of the church, is to be like the city on a hill, a city within a city, this beautiful alternative community living out, doing its best to live out the Sermon on the Mount together now as a prophetic example of where true human flourishing is found under the rule and reign of Jesus. However, and Zahn says this, if the kingdom of Christ is not perceived as a viable alternative society, then competition for conventional political power seems the only option for influencing the world. With a low ecclesiology, so what he means by ecclesiology is what church is all about. With a low ecclesiology, politics trumps everything. If the local church is viewed as devoid of what we think of as real power, he's speaking now from an American perspective, then we inevitably set our sights on Washington, D.C., The national prayer breakfast is believed to be important not because of prayer, but because the president and other power brokers are there. And once you're convinced that God is working through the political machinations or machine of Babylon, and that God is involubly, why did they use these words on your side of the political? That's so too clever. Basically, as soon as you think that God's on the side of your political party, well, you've set yourself up to make enormous compromises. Now, now, hear me, I'm not saying politics don't matter. Of course they do. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't say how fast you should drive between Napier and Topol. doesn't say how much you should pay teachers, healthcare, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and there's obviously issues, and we'll talk about this in the Politics of God series, Politics in the Kingdom of God series, that should inform the Christian vote, right? Since Genesis 1, we're called to care for the environment, we're called to care for the vulnerable and widows and foreigners, all that sort of stuff. Like, that's short. But here's the thing, without a vision for the kingdom of God, that's the only hope we have is that whole political space. And Christians have sold out massively thinking that's how we can influence change instead of grabbing a vision for this. And like, man, it's got to a degree in the States that's super scary. And, uh, and, um, and I only mention all this because the States is just a big influence on the church worldwide and has, has influenced thinking here in New Zealand. I was talking to a friend of, uh, that's very generous, a guy that I hound every now and then into a Zoom with, an uh, amazing pastor uh, called Rich Nathan. And listen to this. He's like, people have invested in politics what was normally invested in their religion in the States. People now find ultimate meaning, community. They have an eschatology. So that's like, what's their great hope for the nation? They have an identifying set of symbols, a set of enemies that's clear. And anyone that doesn't see the world they do is a heretic. Like this literally, they've got the place of politics is now invested in religion. Therefore, Rich Nathan says as an American pastor, if you push back on people's political worldviews, what you're actually doing is pushing back on their religion. And when people push push back on political critique and hot-button social issues, you're effectively critiquing their faith. The le- he says this, this is massive. The level of deception for an American pastor right now is such that we are going to have to learn to how to speak to someone who's really caught up in all this like that in a cult. But it's like, man, this is such an empty place to, p- to put your hope. And a disproportionate passion for politics indicates we've lost a vision for the kingdom of God, what the church is called to be, and who Jesus is. And so our allegiance actually is to Jesus. We, he's Lord and we build his kingdom his way. So that's one of the first things that concerns me in terms of how we can bow the knee to the devil in terms of how we see the kingdom of God come about, is just get super frothed on politics. And the second thing is just prayerlessness in church and in Christians. I think when we lose sight or confidence in the majesty and the power and the glory of God, 
then of course we just lose passion for prayer as any, any helpful agent to, to affect any change. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I got really convicted about this, after, you know, during the cyc- you know, all the cyclone stuff. And like, I just had this thing of like, the Lord, the Lord I've said it, oh, sorry, I'm going to bring the zinger back because I know a few of you felt it. But man, this was a conviction for me, not for our church. But for me, the Lord was like, Sam, you think you can do more with the shovel for the kingdom of God than you can do on your knees. And it was just like, ah, that burns, the deep burn. Oh, it's, ah, you know, it really exposed for me how much I believe prayer affects change. Now, I'm not saying that we don't do stuff, of course. I'm, I just literally went on a rant about finding your purpose in the kingdom. I'm all like, we're not called to just, you know, sequester ourselves away and, do, and just have a holy huddle. No, we get, we get out there and be the hands of feet in Jesus. Hallelujah. But it's like, but, but prayer is powerful. Um, I don't want to be a functional atheist when it comes to prayer, where it's like I believe in God, but my prayer life doesn't reflect jack squat in terms of my belief in it to do much. Uh, this, this guy, Jim Simbala, uh, said this said you can tell how popular a preacher is and I would add or a worship team or a children's ministry or anything like but who is at church on a Sunday morning you can tell how popular Jesus is by how many people are at the prayer meeting zinger another one there's zingers everywhere and this is why like when the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, teach us to pray, because they were watching him. And they grew up in a culture of prayer, but it was like, teach us to pray. He's like, well, here's how you pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a political prayer. First out the bat. It's like, no, through prayer, like that's the, that's the way that we see God's kingdom come. Is by sitting in that sort of prayer here in Napier, Hastings, you know, Flaxmere, even fancy Havelock North. Would you, would your kingdom come here in the bay? What does it look like for that to happen? It's birthed in prayer. Jesus couldn't be clearer about this. Not, not anyone else's kingdom. The kingdom of God. You know, since the twenty-one days of prayer and fasting that we did last year. Um, during that twenty-one days, I started a new thing of like at lunchtime. I was going to pray the Lord's prayer every day. You know, a little alarm, you know, notification comes up on my phone. So I haven't stopped since then. It's been great. And I'm like, man, it's been super helpful for me every single day to pray the Lord's Prayer at lunchtime because it is changing me and it's affecting how I live. And it's like giving me this worldview where it's like every lunchtime, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not sitting in a monastery. I'm not sitting in my car or doing that. And that thing reminded our Father in heaven, as I'm driving around looking at the bay, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is. You know, like, it's just like, Lord, yes, let it be, let it be. And it's like giving me a burden for God's kingdom. Like literally there's a groan that is starting to emerge in my soul for this region that's been birthed out of praying the Lord's Prayer every day. I'm just like, oh, I'm aching to see your kingdom come. This isn't good. And again, repenting for my lack of faith. And, uh, and so anyway. How do we reject the temptation to power and follow Jesus? Well, ooh, here we go. My number one, build a life of prayer. <laughs> John 15, like we, we, we just reject that urge to control via power. We reject the temptation for significance as a way of satisf- satisfying our souls. We reject the great quest to be relevant to the world. We do that as we sit in the love of our Heavenly Father. Sounds so basic, but where's the most contested time in your week? private world with Jesus. 
right? It's the most, why? Because it's the place that frees us, sets us free from that great yearning to be relevant, successful, significant, or to somehow enact what we think should happen via control and power of others. Helps us yield it. But when we get into that space, not only do we get surrounded by the triune love that we're caught up in. Like, do you know how, like, that feels good, eh? Like, you know, your best Devo, you're the best Devos that, you know, where you have that moment where you just feel loved. Just sit there and it's like there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just loving one another, and I'm caught in the middle of all that love, you know? And it's just like, it's just the best feeling. Like, I struggle with insecurity. I have a vulnerability hangover every Monday after I do my talk, all that sort of stuff. And I need the triune love just to settle my soul and remind me that I'm a beloved son of God and you're well pleased with me, mate. You know, I love it. And yet we have this billion-dollar industry trying to distract us from that place of healing and hope. And, and, you know, in that place also when we sit long enough, we start glimpsing who God is. And it's like, oh, man. You created the world. Like these issues that I've got, these, these system, societal problems aren't a big deal for you. So Lord, help me get on my knees and to invoke the power of God to come into this place, into this region to bring healing and life. Uh, John Tyson did a um, brilliant seminar on building a prayer culture in your church um, that a few of us have been engaging in. And it's just, again, Tyson just rocks me up for prayer all the time. And he said, he's like, prayer is not one of the things we do. It is the most important thing we do as a church. And it's like both personally and corporately, prayer is the most important. God uses his prayer to bring his kingdom into the world. Colossians 4 verse 2 says, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. The word devote uh, means to be steadfast, to endure, listen, to be courageously persistent is what it means to, to devote yourself to prayer. I like that. Like our prayer meetings, we would have given up on if we were led by the emotions of the senior pastor in this church. Plenty of, right? You drive into the prayer meeting, I believe you prayer meeting, I'm so tired, I want to go to sleep and have a beer or whatever. You know, it's like, but, well, yes, that's true. Anyway, so, but I'm like, but somehow in our bones as a church, we've gone, no, we're going to be courageously persistent in prayer. And like our prayer meetings are getting better and better. Like honestly, they're just getting better and better. There's something we're cranking through, some stuff here, where it's becoming culture, not becoming something that's just on the fringe. Prayer is the central task of the church, to see God, to know God, to seek God. They would have a conviction, Tyson says, of the worth of God. They would hold on to the promises of God. And they would have an honest assessment of the powerlessness of our own lives. It's through prayer. That's how we can invoke change. A burning conviction that we have to seek first the kingdom and then all these other things, justice issues and society change, these things then become uh, added to us. So the first thing, if we want to just to, to not bow down to the shortcut of power, is to get on our knees and to build a strong life of prayer, both as churches and as individuals. The second thing is to have a vision for the kingdom of God that's burning and embodied in our hearts and lives. Like literally it burns in us. A vision for the kingdom of God. Sermon on the Mount, Luke 4, Colossians 3, Galatians 5. All this stuff would just be in our hearts. We're like, oh, we want to see this. We want to live it. But it needs, but again, the classic, an embodied vision of the kingdom of God. So in a classic example of this, and I've done a whole sermon on this in the past, is the abortion issue, right? I've talked about this 
in the past. No issue has made it more clear to me that the church has primarily had a legislative vision of the kingdom of God based on politics rather than an embodied vision of the kingdom of God than this one. Old Harvey's picking all the hot button subjects. Politics and abortion. We just had to cyclone, mate. Can you just chill out? We're trying to recover from it. But here's, the, here's my point. It's real easy to march on Parliament. And I think it's important we do that sort of stuff. Don't misread me here. But it's way easier to march on Parliament than it is to march into the life of a broken, vulnerable woman and love them to life. And if we had the same number of people marching on Parliament, marching into the lives of broken young women, loving them, caring for them, supplying all the relational and economic needs, and so loving them with an unconditional love of Jesus that keeping the baby was the easiest choice, not the hardest choice, perhaps then we'd have the desired effect that we want to see in this nation. We've got super passionate about the supply issue, very quiet about the demand issue. And that's, that's why we've established the ministry Raising Hope, a ministry that's done literally everything I've just described in terms of trying to, to, to serve women that are, have an unintended or crisis pregnancy. Like literally, I'm like, when it comes to any issue, my first question is like, take government, let's just take government completely out of the equation because the early church didn't have that option. So let's start with what we can do. What can we do as a church to, to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Like, I, I care less and less about what your view is on a particular subject, and more and more I care about what's your embodied response to said issue. Tell me what you're doing then. Tell me what you're doing about that thing that rocks you up, that rages you out, that, that makes you angry. Tell me what your embodied response is, because that's what we're called to be as followers of Jesus, hands and feet of Jesus, agents of his kingdom, that, that as we live a life soaked in prayer, we can see the presence and the goodness and the healing and the beauty of God manifest itself in the world around us. Oh, I want to live that so desperately. Like even speaking about it, I get the tingles. I'm like, yes, this is what Jesus had in mind for the church. This is who we're called to be. Henry Nouwen says this, maybe it's that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. Seems easier to be God than to love God. <laughs> easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. And Jesus asks, do you love me? And we ask, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom? <laughs> and ever since the snake said, in the day you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open, you'll be like gods, knowing good from evil. We have been tempted to replace love with power. And Jesus lived that temptation in the most agonizing way from the desert to the cross. The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. I love this line though, friends. Here comes the hope. Those who resisted this temptation to the end and thereby give us hope are the true saints. Lord, would we be the true saints? Would this church be filled with the true saints? So as we enter into Holy Week next week, we are coming to the coronation event of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as he defeated the power of death and he rises from the dead, he is announcing that there is a new world that is bursting forth into this old and tired one. And as the church is commissioned and filled with the Holy Spirit, our task is to live out that new world in anticipation of Jesus' return and the glory of God covering the world as the water covers the sea.
covering the world as the waters cover the sea. When, when he will return in glory one day, bring that work to completion, hallelujah. But until that day, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get on our knees and we pray and we seek his face. And what's so beautiful and healing about this is therefore we can lay down the rage that we have about politics. And even if that rage is for the right things, as we get on our knees, we can come to Jesus and rest. Don't, doesn't the world need that? There will be a bunch of people not all racked up, but just at rest because we're yoked to the King of the universe, the Lord of all. Coming to land with this, James, Jesus' brother, by the way, James, how trippy is that? If there's anything that gives me a nudge that Jesus is the Son of God and rose from the dead and all the rest of it, it's the fact that his brother vouches for it because I've got a brother and also I've got three little sons. And uh, they'll, be, they'll be the first to be like, hey, whatever, son of God. <laughs> well, anyways, total, total tangent. So James is there and he's, he's recognised his brother's actually who he says he is and all this. And he's, his life's utterly transformed. Becomes a bishop in the early church. He says this, The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Earlier he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Like that's the way of Jesus. It's the way of mercy. It's the way of peace. It's a submissive way. It's filled with good fruit. And so, Lord, may we be your true saints who don't bow the knee to power, but that we're so filled with a vision of the kingdom of God and we're so hungry after your presence and so longing to be just conduits of your love as we sit with you, that we would actually be an, like an alternative society, that we'd be this beautiful community that's the solution to the world's problems, living out the rule and reign of God. Your way, the way of kingdom embodiment is how the world finds hope.